Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 145. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is, like I say, fine, fine and dandy. Great show lined up today. It's, it's been compacted from we missed a couple of weeks and last week was a little bit of a, a get out clause for me. So we've got a few articles in today and a few mentions that I need to do as well. First mention is I'm going to play the interview 15 to 1. It should have been last week, but I'm going to play it this week. It is two minutes of sheer amazing grace. Mr. Ray Bradbury takes the 15 questions. And actually, I'm sure this is the one where I kind of, I'm so starstruck. I don't say that. I miss one out. So, and it's only two minutes, but it's just like everything's, you know, if you're like a writer and you need to kind of condense your words and you need to kind of cut out all the crap, that this is, this is a lesson in that. Do you know what I mean? This is so, do you like science fiction? No! So, and, you know, I think I've mentioned, you know, how I kind of got the, kind of get this interview lined up and everything like that so do listen out for that i'll tell you what's coming up then we have that interview we've also got amy h sturgis with a looking back at genre history we have a new article as well by fred heimbar fred is going to take you back and look at graphic novels and going to do a monthly article on all kind of aspects of the graphic novel and this is something that I'm quite actually excited about because graphic novels and cartoons, not cartoons, comics, missed me by. Do you know what I mean? I kind of struggled with them. I struggled with reading them and I just didn't seem to get into them. And I'm, I'm one of them ones that I desperately want to. You know what I mean? Someone, you know, I'm like the little kiddie in the schoolyard where, no, you know, I want to learn. I want to learn. So Fred's actually, and Fred admits himself, he's not like a great connoisseur of these graphic novels, but he's, he's, he's learning them and he's learning the kind of what, you know, which ones are the great ones, and he's going to share all that knowledge with her. And it's fascinating, to be quite honest. So, new article, a new kind of section by Fred coming up once a month as well. We have Main Fiction Today is by James, British sci-fi writer James Lovegrove, with a great narration as well by Nicola seaton Clark. Nicola, who has done many a fine narration for Starship Sofa. That's what's coming up today. Just before we kind of kick into everything, a couple of announcements. Now, like most things that happen on Starship Sofa, I get an email. I got an email from Mayhair Al Sam Kerry. And Mayhair just dropped us an email and says, Tony, I was going through my computer, you know, and on my hard disk, and I found this little bit of a 3D model that I made of Starship Sofa. And, you know, he said, he's put a link there and I downloaded it. And I was gobsmacked. Do you know what I mean? And this was like... I don't know, 30-second animation of, like, a 
oh, just an amazing kind of spaceship with starships over with like Sofa 42, the flag. And I was like, what? And he says, oh, I've had it on for, you know, in his email, I've had it on for a while, so and you know, I kind of deleted the kind of the 3D model and, you know, it was just a bit of a test. And I'm thinking, you, you took it this long to get in touch with us. Do you know what I mean? So, as usual, do you know what I mean? <laughs> email straight back. Oh, me here. you think you possibly, you possibly could do some more. So, have a look out, roundabout. Hopefully, I'm going to get it, and I'll release it through the feed as well, so you'll get it through this feed. But come over to the front of the website, or hopefully, I'll get it on other people's blogs as well. Meher did another little, like a kind of trailer for Starship Sofa, about a minute, two minutes long, and it's fantastic, you know what I mean? So, please... Have a look out for that. Come over to the website, check the YouTube, check, you know, Starships over on YouTube. It'll be there. Along with my son, actually, with his gardening. So do have a look for that. And again, Meher, it just stunned us, you know. And he actually, Meher told us how long this kind of takes to do. Do you know what I mean? Like one one second of work is 30 frames. And like one frame takes, I think, three to four minutes. Do you know what I mean? There's some hell of a time drain in there. So Meher... You're a star. And guess what? <laughs> I will certainly be coming back to you, sir. Try and get something sorted out, because Dee was keen to do like a, a video for Starship Sova's Volume 2. And, you know, be here. it would be nice to have you on board, sir, and look after her, so to speak. So do, there's a little bit of news. Do come over and look out for the new video, Starship Sova's new video. And it's only about, you know, if this show goes out tomorrow, which will be the 21st of the 7th, two weeks, this week now, and next week, and that's it. On I think it's on the 31st or maybe the 30th of July. Hugo voting ends. You cannot vote no more. So if you're going over to AussieCon, if you've got a ticket, or you're a supporting member, this is it. Do you know what I mean? This is the final time. Please. I'm getting slightly carried away there. <laughs> you know what I mean? People could see me now, man. So yes, it is time to vote. Time to put your nail your, your, your colours to the mast. And if you want Starship Sober to be best, what is it? Best fanzine for a Hugo. To be quite honest, I've won anyways. You know what I mean? Being the first podcast to be even nominated for a Hugo is just an amazing thing. You know what I mean? It'd be lovely icing on the cake. To kind of, to win the thing. God, that would be just amazing. So, you know, if you know anybody, mention Starship Sofa. Finally, if anyone wants to go over to the sanatorium shows, I mean, it will cost you £2.50 a month, but it helps support the Starship Sofa. You'll listen, I've just uploaded just this now, a show all about the ins, or the the process of trying to go for this new job that I, I mentioned last week. Network controller for Northumbrian Water, the company. So I go into detail how I kind of went through the whole thing like that and and got this job. So have a look out for that. Let us kick off with Starship's over. This is the interview. The guy is a legend, Ray Bradbury. You know, he was one of the first kind of ones that I dipped my toes in and started reading his book. Dandelion Wine was just an amazing book for me to read, you know I mean, so poetic, so just, I was just lost in that world and in, in them words, you know, and like you say, Martian Chronicles and everything by Bradbury just seems to capture my, you know, imagination and, and just, I just love the the words, never thought 
that I would be you know, on the end of a phone to this guy, Ray Bradbury. And it was thanks to Larry Santoro who set it all up. Larry, you know, what a, what a star. Thank you so much. We talk about this a couple of times, you know, in a past show, so do, do go back and have a listen to them. But, do you know what I mean? You, there's certain guy, you know, like Jack Vance was another one there. There's certain things in your life when you do these interviews, and then this one come along that are the chance to interview Rhea Bradbury. And, like I say, it's two minutes. It's probably less than that. Do you know what I mean? But it doesn't matter one bit. Do you know what I mean? Because I did it. That was, you, know, that's, you know what I mean? That, that's the kind of thing. I did it. I spoke to Rhea Bradbury and recorded it, and I was able to play it to use as well. So this is the Ray Bradbury 15 questions. Ray Bradbury, are you a science fiction writer? No, I'm not. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, that takes three hours. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? I wrote a sequel to the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I like the planet Mars. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Edgar Burroughs. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Uh, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? No, I can't say anyway, no. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Because, because it's important. It's important to me. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? It is not difficult. It's very easy for me. Does it get any easier? No. Then take a telegraph. It's very easy. Describe your daily work and day. I get up and throw up and clean up at noon. What is the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? I can't answer that. I don't know. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Because it helps people think about the future. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? No, I love it. I love it, yeah. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I don't know that. Bria Bradbury, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. There you go. Do you know what I mean? Come on. Are you a science fiction? No! That's got to be one of my highlights of my doing this show. You know what I mean? Oh, how many times has he been asked that? (laughs) So, next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Amy! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for another look back into genre history. Now, when you think of early influential science fiction stories... You might not think of Bengali Islamic feminist writing. However, I'm hoping to change your mind about that so that next time you will. 
I'd like to talk about a remarkable writer named Rokia Shikawat Hussein, who was born in 1880 and died in 1932. She was a remarkable woman in many respects and leaves a number of legacies that continue to touch lives today. For our purposes, I want to focus particularly on her contribution to early science fiction. But first, let me tell you a bit about her. She was born Rukia Khatun in 1880 in what was then the British Indian Empire and today is Bangladesh. Her well-to-do family had six children, three daughters, and three sons. Rukia was closest to her oldest brother Ibrahim and her immediate elder sister Kermanesa. Both of them had a tremendous impact on her life. People of her family's wealth and station usually spoke either Arabic or Persian. These were considered to be the high-class, well-to-do languages of the upper set. But both Rakia and her older sister also wanted to study Bangla, which was the language of the common people in Bengal. And their older brother Ibrahim encouraged them and supported them in their studies. This seems to have had a significant literary impact on both sisters. Karimunesa later became a celebrated poet. The younger Rakia was married at the age of sixteen to Khan Bahadur Sakawat Hussain, who was the deputy magistrate of Baglapur. This could have spelled the end of her studies, her education, but in fact, her husband encouraged her in her. Pursuit of Bengla, and in fact, also encouraged her to study English as well. And then, to the good fortune of readers everywhere, he suggested that she write and publish. Her first story, which was written in Bengla intentionally, the language of the common people, was published in 1902. I want to point out that this is really a big deal, and I don't mean just in Bengal. I don't mean just in the Islamic world. It is a big deal. Period. In this time,、uh, just to contrast this, if you'll remember back in Aral Delight's show number 58, when I talked about. Uh, feminist utopian writers in the science fiction tradition. I mentioned Mary E. Bradley Lane, who wrote the first great feminist utopian work, *Mizora: A World of Women*, in 1880 and 1881. She was writing in the United States, and at that time, she felt it necessary to hide from her husband the fact that she was writing and that she had published, even though her work was popular. She didn't feel like she could come out and claim public authorship. Rukia Sakawat Hussein, however, had the full endorsement and support of her husband. Before I talk about her writing, I do want to point out that she is remembered as a great social reformer, crusader, and educator, as well as an author. In 1909, she founded a pioneering institution for Muslim girls, known as the Sakawat Memorial Girls School, which still exists and still thrives today, over a hundred years after its creation. She was one of the first public and visible leaders of Islamic feminism. She founded the Islamic Women's Association. Which held conferences and sponsored debates about women 
and their legal status and their opportunities for education, and pursued her position that the Quran had been corrupted and distorted, and that its original teachings should be the basis for social reforms that would change her country from the inside out, particularly regarding the place of women. She wrote and published series of essays with titles like Women in Captivity and The Rights of Women. In 1924, she published a path-breaking novella called Padmarag. This story was kind of a blueprint for the world that she wanted to see, a world that didn't deal with race or creeds or nationalism, but that showed people cooperating together for the good of all. This story tells the tale of a Hindu woman who sets up a community that includes a school, a shelter for the ill and the homeless, and a workshop for vocational training. And this entire community is for women who have been oppressed and abused. On one level, it's the story of the personal journey of the Hindu woman who is the heroine. But on another level, it's the story of the group of women who work together. They are Hindu, Muslim, and Christian, black and white, from a variety of different backgrounds, and they cooperate to create this haven for women. Historically, it's noteworthy that in the tale, she describes women doing things from teaching and washing and farming to things like managing accounts. Typing and supervising subordinates in a professional capacity. This really gave a picture of women being involved in every facet of life. This reinforced and underscored one of the larger messages of her life's work, which was that women's emancipation would only come when the gendered division of labor was broken in her homeland. And women could pursue whatever kind of professional life and career they wished. Rukia Shikawat Hussein died of a heart ailment on December ninth, nineteen thirty-two. December ninth in Bangladesh is today celebrated as Rukia Day in her memory. Now, all of this is well and good, even inspiring, you may say. But Sturgis, how does this relate to science fiction? Well, one of her most important stories was first published in the Indian Ladies Magazine in 1905 in English, and it was called Sultana's Dream. I think you can take that title in one of two ways: one, that it literally is a dream, that the protagonist is asleep and this is what her fancy conjures, or that it is a dream in the way that it is a vision. A goal or an ideal. In this story, the narrator sits down after a long and tiring day, and she either, depending on your interpretation, falls asleep, or is transported somehow into the future or into an alternate universe. One way or the other, she finds herself in a, a different world. She finds that her host or guide, Sister Sarah. Is waiting to show her around the place. It's very familiar, but at the same time, it's all upside down. The men are the servants, 
the men are shut away from the outside world, where they can't be seen or heard. When the narrator expresses her surprise at this and says, "Usually, it's the other way around, where she's from," Sister Sarah is bemused and says, "Why do you allow yourselves to be shut up? Because it cannot be helped, as they are stronger than women." And Sister Sarah responds, "A lion is stronger than a man, but it does not enable him to dominate the human race." You have neglected the duty you owe to yourselves, and you have lost your natural rights by shutting your eyes to your own interests. And with that insight, she begins to show the narrator around this alternate universe. The social criticism is clear here, but what is also a fascination for genre fans is the science. When women take control, the queen. Institutes a series of universities,、uh, founds a number of schools, and particularly emphasizes the sciences. All around her, the narrator sees amazing proof of scientific progress. It's interesting that Sister Sarah says that the men thought that the women's interest in science was all, and I quote, a sentimental nightmare. But when the women Turn the tables on men, shut the men away, and take control. They establish a number of laboratories and conduct their scientific experiments without impediments. One of the first things that the narrator notes is how clean everything is. She notes that there's no sign of coal or fire, no smoke, no soot. How do you cook? She asks.、And、it turns out that the women have harnessed solar heat. Yes, in 1905, she imagined smart houses being run solely by solar power. Another thing the narrator notes is that there's no mud, which she would normally find because of all of the incessant rains in the area. And this is what she's told: in the capital, where our queen lives, there are two universities. One of these invented a wonderful balloon to which they attached a number of pipes. By means of this captive balloon, which they managed to keep afloat above the cloudland, they could draw as much water from the atmosphere as they pleased. As the water was incessantly being drawn by the university people, no cloud gathered, and the ingenious lady principal stopped rain and storms thereby. Apparently, the men who were still out and about at this time thought this was rather ridiculous. It really didn't help them make war very much at all. But the women could see the immediate practical implications. Later, the men were put under the purda, which is depicted as the exact inverse of what Rakia Shakalat Hussein experienced during her own lifetime, which was women not being allowed to be seen by men. In the case of this alternate universe, the men should not be seen by women, and thus they were shut away in their domestic sphere. We can see a glimpse into her vision for her country as this remarkable feminist utopia is described. In this alternate universe that she gets to tour, she is told, "We are all very busy making nature yield as much as it can. We do not find time to quarrel with one another, as we never sit idle. Our noble queen is exceedingly fond of botany. It is her ambition to convert the whole country into one grand garden." And later, our religion is based on love and truth. 
It is our religious duty to love one another and to be absolutely truthful. But when the narrator asks how liars are punished, she imagines it would be with the death penalty. Her guide, Sister Sarah, is appalled. No, not with death. We do not take pleasure in killing a creature of God, especially a human being. The liar is asked to leave this land for good and never to come to it again. The story ends after this exhilarating tour, with the narrator finding herself once again in her home, in her real life, in her time and place, inspired and challenged by what she has seen. This tale, in its social and political implications, which I should point out are still relevant today, more than a hundred years after its publication, is noteworthy, and it is also. Important for the way that it portrays women, their relationship to science, and the potential scientific leaps that would make possible the transformation not only of her culture but also of her land. Sultana's dream definitely deserves to be remembered as one of the great early science fiction feminist utopias. Fortunately, it is available today through the University of Pennsylvania's website under a celebration of women writers. You can find that through digital.library.upenn.edu, and I encourage you to read it for yourself. And I hope that I have convinced you that there's good reason why science fiction fans should celebrate Rukia Day. I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. Amy, thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it comes from James Lovegrove. James Lovegrove is British writer, speculative fiction, born in 1965, year older than me. It was my well, what day is today? Oh, it's the twentieth day of July. It was my birthday yesterday, the nineteenth. <laughs> His first, oh, sorry, his first novel, Hope, published by Macmillan in 1990. He was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1998 for his novel Days and for the John W. Campbell Memorial Award in 2004 for his novel United Kingdom. Novels include Hope, Days, The Foreigners, United Kingdom, World Storm, Age of Ra, Age of Zeus, Age of Odin, all by Solaris Books and Galance. Short stories. He's got a couple of collections of short stories out there. Imagine Slights and this year Diversifications, which came out in 2010 by PS Publishing. This story is narrated by Nicola Seaton Clark over there from Ofstimmer, together with her husband Peter Seaton Clark. Great team. This is a fine narration. Nicola, thank you so much. So Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Wings by James Lovegrove The bell rang, and suddenly the corridors and shafts of the school were filled with moving bodies, and the classrooms, libraries, laboratories and gymnasia were left empty and echoing to the slamming of desk lids and doors. Dust and loose leaves of paper settled, even as the teachers began to shape their lips around the words, Class dismissed. Through the building, the children flew with a great racketing roar, celebrating with their screams and whoops and yells the death of another school day. A dozen disparate streams of them converged in the main hallway, 
And when the hallway could no longer contain all these young bodies, all the enthusiasm made flesh, the main doors swung wide and spilled them out into the yard. There the children blinked and stood dazed for a moment in the sunshine, like prisoners released from long sentences in lightless dungeons. But then, quickly adjusting to their newfound freedom, they fell to clasping hands and exchanging grins and sharing jokes and promising to meet up later that day or tomorrow or whenever and dividing into pairs and knots of three or four and the odd solemn single, up from the yard they rose on single down-thrusts of their wings, and off they flew along the windy streets of Cloud-Cap City, satchels in hand, shirt-tails and skirt-hems fluttering, blowing like dandelion seeds to all six corners of the compass. Amid all this fever to escape, As plodded along in his usual ungainly fashion. A few classmates patted him on the shoulder and said, See you, as they flew past. But Az's excruciatingly slow progress meant that no one was going to stay beside him for long. It just wasn't possible. It took Az over a minute to traverse a corridor or clamber up or down a shaft, using the metal rungs fitted into the walls especially for him, whereas it took the rest of them a handful of seconds. The other children swooped around him like swifts, like swallows, while Az was a beetle. "'struggling, bumbling, lumbering. "'The last few children were taking off from the yard "'when Az finally emerged into the daylight. "'He watched them rise into the sky, "'wave to one another and flit off in different directions. "'He waved too, on the off chance that one of them "'might happen to look back and see him and return the gesture. "'But it was useless. "'Their eyes were fixed on the horizon and home.' alone, and sunk deep in his own thoughts, as traipsed across the yard. Normally he would have caught the airbus and travelled home with the elders and the fledglings and all the other clipped wings, but when he came through the school gates, he found his brother Michael waiting for him on the landing platform in his corbeau. Michael was returning the admiring glances of a pair of girls who were wafting by on the other side of the street, but catching sight of as he forgot about them and raised a hand and cried, Hey, little brother, hop aboard. As climbed into the passenger seat beside Michael, dumping his satchel between his feet. Michael hit a switch on the dashboard of the corbeau and the blades began to rotate above their heads. Over the rising whine of the engine and the vip-vip-vip of chopped air, he shouted, Good day at school! As shrugged, So-so. Michael looked carefully at the little guy and saw the gloom in his face, sitting heavy there like cumulonimbus on a blue sky. He didn't ask what the matter was. He merely said, I've got an idea. Why don't we stop by the ice castle on the way home? I bet you anything there's a Sunday there with your name on it. Thanks. No, said Az, buckling on his safety belt. Okay, why don't we pop over to the aeroball then? I've got free passes. Come on, the Thunderhead Eagles are playing the Stratoville Shrikes. Oh. Oh? What does that mean, oh? The Shrikes, as you love the Shrikes. No. It's all right, really. Thanks. I just want to go home. Michael frowned. Well, okay. If you say so. If you're sure. He glanced out of the cockpit to check the street was clear, then pushed down on the joystick. 
the autogyro sprang from the landing platform, soaring up into the sparkling air. The Corbeau, the latest model in the Airdyne 3 series, was the status symbol two-seater of the moment. Sleek, tapered, a giant's teardrop cast in bronze, every inch of the surface of its fuselage smooth and gleaming, from the nose cone with its ring of rivets to the scallop-grooved tail fins. And Michael flew it with the requisite recklessness, slipping and side-sliding through the air channels, descending suddenly, just as suddenly climbing, overtaking, undertaking, the aircraft responding to the tiniest nudges on the stick and pedals, as though it were an extension of its pilot, a mechanical extrapolation of Michael's own abilities. And had Az been in any kind of good mood, he would have been laughing uproariously as they nipped around the other traffic and whizzed past his schoolfellows at breakneck speed, leaving them standing just as they had left him standing earlier. But today, not even a fast ride in a classy piece of auto-engineering could lift his depression. If anything, it served to deepen it. They whisked down Sunswept Avenue, great cubes of apartment block blurring by on either side, then took a right onto Cirrus Street, then up onto Goshawk, and shortly after that the Corbeau was settling down onto the private landing platform that poked out like a rectangular tongue from their parents' front porch. As leapt out and was about to make his way to the front door when Michael grabbed him by the arm and turned him around with a gentle but forceful strength, bringing them face to face. Listen, little brother, he said softly. As averted his gaze. I know it's not easy for you, Michael continued, and I know that sometimes it must feel like the whole world's against you because of what you don't have or what you think you don't have. Just remember this, it doesn't matter. You're still our heirs, and one lousy pair of wings isn't going to change that. If I thought it would, I'd cut mine off and give them to you right now. You understand that, don't you? As nodded dumbly, not looking up. Good. Well, take it easy on yourself. Maybe we'll go down to the bowl at the weekend. How about that? Would you like that? As nodded again, and Michael let him go. The whine of the autogyro rose behind him as he wandered slowly up to the porch. Michael's catch you later was cut short by a slammed front door. Dear, his mother's voice from the kitchen, Azrael? She came out into the hallway, drying her hands on a dish towel. Was that Michael I heard just now? Isn't he going to stay for supper? As shook his head. I don't know. Some girl, I bet, said his mother, indulgent wrinkles multiplying around her eyes. Maybe, said As. Then, I'm going up to my room. To reach the upper story of the house, As had to use a contraption his father had built for him a space-consuming succession of cantilevered wooden steps that rose diagonally through an aperture in the ceiling. His parents used the steps, too, whenever he was around. As a rule, they made sure to walk as much as possible when he was in the house, out of respect to his feelings. His room was like any other twelve-year-old's room, save that the door went all the way down to the floor, another of his father's DIY adaptions. The carpet was strewn with clothing, books, pieces of a long-abandoned jigsaw, some small die-cast biplanes, and a larger-scale model of a corbeau which Michael had given him on his last birthday, saying it would do until Az was old enough to earn his pilot's license, at which point Michael would buy him the real thing. He dropped his satchel into the middle of all this debris 
and stretched out on his bed, flat on his back. Lying on his back, as reflected, was the one thing he could do that no one else could. Some compensation, yeah, right, what a talent. The kids at school were forever asking him to show how well he could lie on his back. He stared up at the ceiling for a long time, trying to think of nothing. At some point during the long, slow diminuendo of the afternoon, he fell asleep. And he dreamed. One morning, Az wakes up to find he's grown a fully-fledged pair of wings. He doesn't know how they got there. He doesn't dare ask why. He simply accepts. His parents are happy and amazed. His mother cries. His father thumbs some grit from his eye. They forgive Az. For what, they do not say, but it is enough for Az to be forgiven. He kisses them both and prepares to fly off to school under his own steam for the first time ever. Flying, he finds, is not so difficult. He has the instinct for it now, and now he has the means. A little practice, some plummeting and frantic fluttering, and he's on his way. Heads turn, and mouths gape in the schoolyard. A cry goes up, Look, look at that! Did you ever? Who'd have thought? As a light's in the middle of the schoolyard, and his peers cluster around him, jabbering excitedly. They fire off a million questions at him. They ask him if they can touch his wings. He tells them they can. They touch them with reverential awe and care. It tickles. Word gets round, and before he knows it, As is a celebrity in school. He's clapped and cheered wherever he goes. When he glides down a shaft with his wings outstretched, every feather intricately splayed to catch the air, he descends into a hail of hurrahs. When he kites along a corridor, keeping pace with the rest of his class as they hurry from one lesson to the next, they grin and encourage him every flap of the way. During break time, Az is asked to join half a dozen impromptu games of balloon ball, and though he's never played before, has only ever watched from the sidelines, he soon gets the hang of it and even scores a horizontal slide. The seal is put on his popularity when Mrs. Ragoul interrupts Phys Ed to ask Az for a demonstration. The class goes outside, and Az soars and barrel rolls and loop the loops for their benefit. Mrs. Ragoul tells him he is not just a good flyer, he is a great flyer. Then the rest of them join him in the air, and together, under Mrs. Ragoul's approving eye, they pass a happy truant half-hour simply doing what they like best, wheeling and whirling and squealing and squalling like a flock of mad seagulls. All the time, Az is the centre of attention, the focus of everybody's admiration. After all, anyone who can make one of Mrs. Ragoul's fizzed torture sessions fun has to be some kind of hero. He woke up. He dared to touch his back, still wingless. He rolled disconsolately over onto his side to look out of the window at Cloudcap City, all laid out in neat rows and columns and tiers, up, down, left, right, reaching as high as the stratosphere and as low as the cloud top and as far as the horizon, each block suspended by means of six-way electromagnetic positional stabilizers to form a three-dimensional latticework of buildings, between and through and around which tiny figures and aircraft of all shapes and sizes were threading their way. Most of the buildings were cubic in shape, but they were oddities. The cylinder of the Freefall Dance Palace was one, the annular aerobowl another, the spike-spired mace-ball fantasy of the Cathedral of the Significant God a notable third. The air being clear and his eyes being sharp, 
as could make out the bird trawlers a mile below in the cloud top, casting their nets into the wilderness of white. He could also make out the sky mines that ringed the city, forming a circle of stability on which the whole meniscus of floating buildings depended. The sky mines looked like tulips balancing on lofty, delicately slender stems which pierced the cloud top and went all the way down to the ground, from where they sucked up the juices that kept the city running. Service elevators, like glass aphids, crawled up and down the stems. He lay there watching the view for he didn't know how long. It seemed like no time and all time had passed when his mother called up from below, summoning him down for supper. As clumped down to the kitchen, from which emanated smells which even his gloom-ridden brain recognised as mouth-watering. "'Go and call your father,' said his mother. "'Then you can lay the table.' As went out into the hallway again, walked along a little way and stopped at the large trapdoor that led down to his father's workshop. He listened hard and heard from below faint sounds of banging and talking, clonking and clanging. Construction. While a working man, Az's father had spent much of his spare time dabbling in home improvements, which were usually for Az's benefit, like the steps and all the doorways in the house. When his forty-year career as a maker and mender of clocks had finally wound down, however, he had turned his hand to invention, and had begun building a series of thises and thats and the others, gadgets he hoped one day to patent and sell by the million, devices intended to make everyone's lives that little bit easier. So far, not a single one had proved patent feasible. A portable trouser press had made its mark in all the wrong ways. A clockwork toothbrush had been a gum-mangling disaster. A pair of self-sharpening scissors that had almost cost him a finger. But he went on making these things nonetheless, toiling away by the uncertain light of a gas lantern, in secret, in the strictest of privacy, hope springing eternal with the completion of every new invention, until that invention blew a gasket or slipped a cog or collapsed in a heap or simply failed to start. Then it was, Oh well, back to the drawing board with a sigh that contained neither defeat nor despair. It was almost as if Az's father wasn't really looking forward to the day one of his devices worked and was a success and made his fortune and meant that he never had to make anything else again. The old man was happy just to be in his workshop, out of harm's way, tinkering, occupying his hands and his time. Az called down, and the sounds of construction ceased, and his father's muffled voice came up. Yes? Supper. Coming. A moment later, his father bustled up into the kitchen. Give me a hand here, won't you, son? He turned his back, and Az helped him unzip and wrestle his way out of the plastic slipcovers he wore over his wings to protect them from dust and stray sparks. His father's plumage had greyed at the edges, was rough in patches like a fledgling's, and had gaps where pin feathers had fallen out and would never grow back again but they were fine, proud wings all the same, and in excellent condition for a man his age. "'Outside, please,' said Azza's mother, referring to the dusty wing covers. Her husband obediently popped them out onto the back porch. "'I shudder to think of the state of that workshop,' she went on. "'Knee-deep in shavings and scrapings and wood chips and what have you.' Azza's father clasped a fist to his chest. "'I would rather die than have you clean in there.' I wasn't offering, his wife replied. I was merely remarking. 
While As finished laying the table, his father washed his hands in the sink. Drying them on a towel, he said, quietly as if it was no matter at all, Do you know, I really think I'm onto something this time. As's mother, who'd heard this statement or statements pretty much like it a hundred times before, said without looking up from the stove, That's good, dear. As said nothing. But when his father sat down at the table, there was a gleam in his eyes as could not remember seeing there before, a light of excitement brightening the well-yellowed whites. No, I mean it, he said. I've been working on this particular project for some weeks now, and I think I'm close to cracking it. Eat, said Az's mother, placing laden plates in front of them. They ate. His parents, reckoning Az was not in a communicative mood, left him alone and chattered between themselves, chewing over trivialities and inconsequentialities, the way long-married couples do when the weighty subjects have all been thoroughly discussed, and all that remains is the nitty-gritty and the fine-tuning and the splitting of hairs. Finally, Az could bear it no longer and said, What? What, what? said his father. What is it? There's something that you're on to. What? The gleam re-entered the old man's eyes. Never you mind, Az. Wait and see. By this time, Az's mother was intrigued too. Go on, Gabe, she said. Give us a clue. What, and ruin the suspense? Is it going to make us rich? Az asked. His father made a great show of considering the question. Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. He grinned enigmatically. Wait and see. Az waited several days, and still did not see. Every afternoon when he came home from school... He would stop quietly by the trapdoor and listen to the tink and bonk and clatter and whack-whack-whack of industry, and the tuneless humming with which his father often counterpointed the rhythm of his labours. The sounds seemed no different from the sound his father usually made down there. They were infuriatingly ordinary. His attempts to extract from his father even the tiniest hint as to what was taking shape in the workshop were met with gleeful stonewalling. Endless questions could be asked over the dinner table, only to be answered with a maybe, or a could be, or a simple not saying. Once, recalling that his father had recently bought in several sheets of copper, as asked whether these had some bearing on the mystery. But his father pointed out, rightly, that he was constantly buying and bringing in sheets of copper. It was, he said, the most tractable and obliging metal to work with. One evening, while flicking through a magazine, Az held up each page of advertising in turn and showed it to his father, asking, Is it like that? To which, in every instance, his father replied, Something like that, only completely different. Eventually, Az became so aggravated that he threw the magazine down and left the room, hearing his father chuckle merrily behind him. There was no question of secretly investigating the workshop, violating the privacy of his father's sanctum sanctorum. So, in the end, there was nothing for it but to wait and wonder. One good thing, though, came of this continuing mystery. As was so busy thinking about what might be in the workshop that he forgot to dwell on his own problems. Teachers marked the disappearance of his depressive fits and were quietly pleased, although a tendency to daydream in class was noted in the normally diligent pupil. His classmates were for the most part indifferent to the change in his temperament, 
although a few of them did notice that Az no longer scowled so hard when he walked. His mind seemed to be elsewhere, on something outside himself. The more sensitive among them recognized this to be a healthy sign. Eighteen days after his first announcement, Az's father made a second, even more impressive announcement. It came one supper time. Michael had dropped by on his way to pick up a girl called Raffaella and take her to a harp recital at the Cathedral of the Significant God. The family were halfway through the main course when Az's father tapped his wine glass with his fork, cleared his throat and said, A short speech. Everyone groaned. A very short speech. Just to say that this Sunday we'll see the unveiling of a device that is going to make us the happiest family alive. I want you to be there, Michael, if you can make it. This isn't another of your exploding specials, is it, Dad? said Michael. Like the self-heating coffee cup? It's something, said the old man, with an extravagant display of self-restraint, that is going to make us the happiest family alive. Michael turned to Az. We're going to be millionaires, he said with a confident wink. That night, Az hardly slept at all. It was ridiculous, he knew, to get all excited over a, a dumb invention of his father's that might not even work. But there it was. His father's enthusiasm was infectious. And so Az lay awake, trying to imagine what form the device would take, what use it could be put to, how big it would be, how practical. And he ached for Saturday to come, so that he could see which, if any, of his suppositions turned out to be correct. The day of the unveiling arrived and Az and his mother watched Michael and the old man haul the device up from the workshop and carry it out onto the landing platform. The device was covered by a tarpaulin, so that all anyone could say about it was that it was twelve feet long, thin at either end, bulky in the middle, and angular all over. Az thought of the dinosaur skeleton in the Museum of Ancient Artifacts. Well, said Az's mother, gift-wrapping her impatience in a laugh. One moment, said his father. First, a short speech. As before, the family groaned, as they were supposed to. Pretending not to notice, Az's father ruffled his wings and grasped his lapel like a politician. Once, he began, long ago we were not airborne but groundling, and we lived an earthbound life, circumscribed on all sides by natural boundaries, mountains, rivers, seas. Since then, the race has moved onwards and upwards, and now we live lives as close to perfection as it is possible to get. We are paragons, living embodiments of all that the groundlings aspired to. This is our heritage and our privilege, a privilege that should not be denied to anyone, least of all to flesh of my flesh. Here, he looked straight at Az, and suddenly everyone, except Az, had a pretty good idea what lay beneath the tarpaulin. There might have been more to the speech, but Az's father sensed that the game was up, and like any good showman, he knew he should not let the audience get ahead of him. So, with a grand flourish, he swept back the tarpaulin, revealing his creation to the world. Four faces were reflected in a relief mosaic of burnished copper. Three of them gawped, wide-eyed. The fourth grinned with pride. Finally, someone spoke. It was Az's mother. Wings? she exclaimed, 
the word tailing up into a question? Wings, her husband confirmed, bringing the word back into land. And wings they were. Larger than life-size, correct in every detail, lovingly crafted in beaten copper. A pair of metal, mechanical wings. Every feather was there, perfect down to the fine comb teeth of its filaments, and pinned into place with a free-floating bolt. Every joint, too, from the ball and sockets at the base of the armatures to the hinges at the elbows. And a complex system of pulleys and wires connected the ensemble to a leather harness which was just the right shape and just the right size for the torso of a boy of twelve. Come on, then, said Az's father, taking Az by the shoulder. Let's try them on, shall we? Michael stepped forward to help, and together he and the old man loaded the wings onto Az's back and tightened the straps of the harness around his chest. Az submitted passively to the fitting, not knowing what to think, not really thinking anything. The wings were very heavy, and when his father and Michael let go, he teetered and would have overbalanced if Michael had not caught and steadied him. Az barely listened as his father explained how the wings worked. You see, they're designed to take the action of the muscles in your shoulders and translate it into wing beats, so you'll simply be employing the natural abilities God gave you. You may have some trouble adjusting to them at first, but that's only to be expected. There's no reason why instinct shouldn't take over almost straight away. Trust me, as you'll be up and soaring in no time. Bookended by Michael and his father, Az staggered to the edge of the landing platform the wings making a soft, shimmering clatter with each step as hundreds of copper feathers shook against one another. He peered down. The rippled surface of the cloud top was awfully far below. The bird trawlers plying their trade down there looked as tiny as gnats. He glanced back over his shoulder. At first he could see nothing but copper wing, but he dropped his shoulder slightly and the wing flattened out, and then he could see his mother. There were tears in her eyes. Go on, she said to him, smiling bravely. Don't be scared, you'll be fine. But he wasn't scared. He was embarrassed. The clench of his jaw wasn't one of determination, but one of humiliation. He felt clumsier than ever, burdened by these huge metal prostheses. He felt neither airborne nor grounding, but a, a horrid amalgamation of the two, a joke, a parody. What would they think of him at school when he turned up on Monday morning strapped into this ugly, clattering copper contraption? I don't think I can go through with this, he said. Nonsense, said his father, mistaking the tremor in Az's voice for fear. Michael and I will make sure you're all right, won't we, Michael? Whatever happens, you won't come to any harm. Trust us. Will you at least hold on to me? As implored. The only way to learn is the way I learned, said Michael. The way we all learn. What way is that? Said As doubtfully. The hard way, said Michael. And with a grin that was devoid of malice, and yet still wicked, he grabbed As's arm. As's father on the other side did the same, and together, chanting, One, two, three! They heaved As out over the edge and into space, and let go. There was a moment of sheer disbelief, followed by a moment of sheer terror. Then all that was lost in the sickening uprush of falling. The weight of the wings yanked as head over heels onto his back, 
and down he went in a wind-shivered rattle of metal. Down he plummeted, making no attempt to right himself or flap the wings, unable even to entertain the notion of saving himself. Down in a state of dreamlike apathy, with no thought except that he was going to die. Hypnotically down, past building after building, past windows and doorways, past light aircraft and happy citizens out for a Saturday morning glide. Down, 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 with no hope of rescue and no desire for it either. Down without a gasp or a scream, for an elastic stretch of second, the platform above receding, the house and all the houses around it shrinking, the sky growing smaller and filling up with more and more city. Down towards the cloud top and the ground from where the airborne race once sprang and which now lay forever hidden. There was a tentative knock at the door. Can I come in? Sure, Dad. As glanced up from the book he was reading, an adventure story about sky pirates as his father entered the room. The old man's head was contritely bowed, and his wings drooped so low their tips were almost touching the floor. The look of shame that hung on the old man's face was so comical, as could hardly fail to smile. His father gestured at the edge of the bed. May I? As nodded. The old man sat down. There was a long silence while he deliberated over his next move. Then he reached out and laid one hand on Az's leg. He patted the leg, the action affectionate yet mechanical. It was clear he had several things to say, but no idea in what order to say them. Az helped him out. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. My feelings? By not trying. Oh, well, well, I wouldn't say my feelings were hurt, exactly. I was a little disappointed. No, no, not even that. I did hope. Well, it doesn't matter now. How I feel doesn't matter. It's how you feel that matters. I feel fine, honestly. The doctor said there may be some delayed shock. I feel absolutely fine, Dad. Guilty, though. Guilty? For letting you down. You didn't let me down, As said his father with an exasperated laugh. How can I get that into your thick skull? I don't mind. Really, I don't. It's, it's enough for me that you're alive and well. Well, I think I did. I mean, the wings would have worked. Almost certainly. Definitely. If I'd tried. I just didn't try. I, I didn't want to try. Oh, said his father. For the sake of his own conscience, it was what he had been hoping to hear. Well, anyway, you'll be pleased to learn that I've taken the damn things along to the scrapyard. Never again. But you are going to carry on with your inventions. As his father frowned. Perhaps. The fun's sort of gone out of it. But what about making your million? It's just a dream... Dreams are important. As, said his father, then paused. When your mother was pregnant with you, the doctors suggested she... she shouldn't have you. Health reasons. She wasn't so young anymore. But she was prepared to take the risk. Quite determined, as a matter of fact. And because she was, I was too. We both wanted you more than we've ever wanted anything. No question about it. 
And when you came, we couldn't have been happier. We loved you the instant we set eyes on you. You were different, but that only made you special. His father looked deep inside himself. Even so, it hasn't always been easy. You understand, for, for any of us, the looks we sometimes get, that mixture of compassion and disappointment, like we've somehow let the whole race down. Sometimes, anyway, what I'm saying is, I was wrong to try and make you the same as everyone else. I'd convinced myself I was doing it for you, but of course I was just doing it for myself. And now I can't help thinking what would have happened if Michael hadn't been so quick off the mark. If he hadn't caught you when he did. But he did, and I'm fine. It just wasn't meant to be, Dad. That's all there is to it. Please believe me when I say that I had your best interests at heart. It simply never occurred to me. That I just assumed that to fly must be your dream, your greatest, wildest dream. Oh, but it is, Dad, it is. I dream about having wings all the time. The thing is, I've got so used to the fact that it's never going to happen, it doesn't bother me so much anymore. Sometimes it's better to have a dream and not have it fulfilled than make do with something that's like your dream but not quite as good. Say I'm forgiven anyway. You're forgiven anyway. Thank you. The old man thought about tousling his son's hair, but checked himself. That was something you did to little children, to boys. Instead, he patted Az's leg one more time and left the room. Az shut his book and turned over to look out of the window. Cloud Cap City, his home, lay suspended in the bright afternoon sunshine, shadowless and huge, its interstices busy with traffic, thriving with life. It pleased Az to think that even if only for a handful of seconds, he had plunged through that city unaided, unsupported. That he had had a taste of flight, however brief and unwelcome. It filled him with a, a weird kind of serenity. In this world, he would always be a floor-bound, wingless freak. There was no changing that. But in his dreams... In his dreams he would always be able to fly. There you go, don't forget, copyright is James Lovegroves. James, Nicola, thank you so much. Next up is Fred Heimbaugh. Fred's called his new article, Beholding the Graphic Text. Fred, take it away, sir. Greetings, sofa people. Fred Heimbaugh here. On behalf of all the peace-loving peoples of planet Earth, I bring you greetings. This is The Graphic Fan, Episode 1, My Metadata. What am I doing here? I really don't understand, Tony. For inscrutable reasons... Tony emailed me recently and asked me to return to the Starship sofa with a regular monthly spot. The job of reviewing graphic novels was vacant, so I volunteered for that. Now, let's get one thing clear. I am no expert. 
Furthermore, I'm in no position to stay on top of all the new releases, the new publications in graphic novels, to read them all and let you know what's good and what sucks among that stuff. Really, all I can offer you in this situation is one simple thing. An innocent, childlike, almost moron-like enthusiasm for the topic. In this first episode, I want to describe a few key influences that got me paying attention to graphic novels. I'm not going to review any graphic novels this time at all. Instead, I'm going to give you what's called the metadata. Now, my path to graphic novels is an unusual one, so please be patient. We're going to meander a little bit here. Ideally, you would want someone sitting in this chair uh, reviewing graphic novels who has been steeped in the medium from youth. Well, my first uh, discovery, my first exposure of uh, comics was as a kid at the barbershop. They had a big stack of well-thumbed classic superhero titles uh, sitting there uh, in the waiting room. And uh, with nothing better to do, I looked at them. My sheltered little brain reacted to the subject matter with the opinion that it was pretty violent, disturbed, warped, even, dare I say it, depraved. Nevertheless, I disliked it. I never really pursued comics. I never got into the superheroes. I never bought them or collected them, uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, Thanks to my religious upbringing, I was exposed to a few religious titles. One that I remember very fondly was uh, called God Smuggler. It's the story of a man who went by the name Brother Andrew, and he was a smuggler of Bibles into uh, countries where they were forbidden. Uh, In fact, recently, I went on a bit of a nostalgia trip and found that title on uh, A-Books and bought a copy for my 11-year-old son. Uh, Another exception to the no-comics Experience that I had growing up was the pamphlets of Jack Chick. You know, as I'm putting this together, I'm thinking maybe in the future I'll do a whole episode on Jack Chick. He brought, he created these little booklets, uh, religious tracts that were always uh, in graphic novel form. He brought a strange kind of extreme agenda, but also a raw energy to his art that is really unique. If you have never heard of Jack Chick and you don't know what I'm talking about, it might be worth me uh, spending some time telling you about him. Uh, but the fact is, on my part, I did not pursue the, the uh, medium in any systematic way. So how did I become an enthusiast only after reaching middle age? Um, I'm going to talk about some key influences here, and we're going to begin, uh, we're going to get on the graphic novel train, and the first stop is going to be Austria. We're going to go to the von Mises Institute. Now, Ludwig von Mises was was a member of the so-called Austrian School of Economics. These are libertarian theorists. 
Okay, that's a very odd place to start, I know. Uh, but in 2006, the Institute hosted a lecture series by Paul A. Cantor, who is the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. The series was called Commerce and Culture. And the main, main thesis is that uh, the marketplace is better at promoting art than government subsidy. This is a controversial idea, and... Um, Many of you don't care, and uh, the rest of you probably are actively hostile to this idea. But uh, uh, I also know that that uh, libertarianism is not exactly what you were expecting to get when you came to this science fiction podcast today. So please, feel free to ignore the libertarian ideas if you wish. There is, however, a secondary thesis which I want to talk about, which uh, Paul Cantor uh, covers uh, quite a bit. It's that new media, when it arrives, is always misunderestimated by the old guard of established artists and critics. This is not an not really an original idea. It's not terribly brilliant idea, honestly. But Paul Cantor has a knowledge of history and an engaging wit that pounded this point home, pounded it into my thick skull in a way that honestly, was life-changing. Cantor says that each new medium gets tagged with the same three denunciations over and over and over in history. The three denunciations are that the new medium has too much sex and violence, that it's addictive, and that its users lose the ability to distinguish fantasy from reality. I couldn't believe that when I heard the number three, uh, especially. My reaction was, oh, come on. Nobody says that new media robs you of your ability to distinguish fantasy from reality. But I got to tell you, on the very next Sunday after I listened to Paul Cantor's talk, I was sitting in church and I heard a sermon where the pastor, believe it or not, he was attacking video games. And he honestly said he claimed that video games cause people to lose their ability to distinguish. Yeah, you, yeah, yes, of course. So I thought, whoa. And, you know, it's funny. Just this week as I was preparing for this talk, I also noticed um, another thing. Um, there's a, uh, in the news now, there's a member of the Euro- European Parliament from Ireland who has called for new laws to be written to regulate social media on the Internet. She says that Facebook is addictive. Okay, one pastor and one member of the European Parliament do not a trend make. However, Cantor's got a whole list of historical examples. Uh, He starts all the way back at the time of the ancient Greeks. In Plato's time, epic poetry... Uh, We're basically talking uh, the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, of course. Those were the classic art forms. And theater was new. Theater was this dynamic, kind of gimmicky, kind of strange, new art form that was really exciting. Plato's reaction, he said that too much sex and violence, it's addictive, and it causes you to lose your ability to distinguish fantasy from reality. Believe it or not, it's in there. Uh, This happens to media that we think of as being old and stodgy nowadays. We're talking opera, the novel, no matter what it is, Cantor fills in the details. 
I suggest that you listen to all 10 talks in the lecture series. But if you want to skip over most of the libertarian economics, uh, then go straight to talk number 10, which is called Conclusion, Culture as Pop Culture. Cantor covers um, video games very heavily, but he talks about graphic novels there also. And uh, Tony uh, will provide links to the Von Mises Institute and Paul Cantor's lecture series. Look for those links on the Starship Sofa website. Okay. Now, just because everyone says something over and over, that doesn't prove it's not true. In my exploration of graphic novels, I've been shocked sometimes by the levels of sex and violence. I blame the Japanese. My purpose here is to not get caught up in the crossfire between blue noses on one side and pornographers on the other. Instead, I just want to urge you all to keep in mind the principle that graphic novels, like any new medium, progress from, by stages from outsider art to insider art. You know, maybe it's not completely crazy to denounce a uh, new medium. Maybe shallow thrill-seekers are naturally drawn to whatever is new. That seems possible. On the other hand, it's also possible that exhausted old media might turn to sensationalism to lure audiences back, like an aging pop star who finds she can only keep her fickle fans' attention by taking off more and more of her clothes. I know uh, from reading classical music critics that some recent trends in opera production are as objectionable to anything in graphic novels. We're talking some pretty disturbing stuff. Now, outside of a small group of critics, no one is really noticing the bad things happening in opera because the kids aren't going to opera. They're reading graphic novels. Old fogies think they know already what opera is all about. It's fat ladies singing, but they don't understand the, the kid stuff, the graphic novels, and that scares them. Anyway, Paul Cantor opened my eyes to a whole new world. He really made me want to check out this new culture, this graphic novel and video game culture, this Pacific Rim culture, this everybody's got a Japanese name now culture. So I went to the library, looked for some books. I found some books on the topic of graphic novels. Dull, dusty books filled with lots of text. And every once in a while, hey, maybe a little picture or two to illustrate the point. These did not grab me. But I found a few books that did not fit this description. And these books I'm going to recommend to you now. 500 Essential Graphic Novels, The Ultimate Guide by Gene Cannonberg Jr. is a beautiful book published by Collins Design. I love this book. I love the compact uh, shape and the glossy paper. It's just a gorgeously put-together book. Each of the 500 Essential Graphic Novels gets one to two pages of coverage with intelligently selected illustrations and a quick description. Do find this book and read it. It will make you want to dive into the medium, and it will help you find the best graphic novels that are just for you, just for your tastes. A lot of thought went into this book. And you know, I can also recommend uh, a companion volume 
500 Essential Anime Movies by Helen McCarthy. By way of the essential guide, I found the best metadata of all. Here it is, folks. It's a graphic novel about graphic novels. Published over 15 years ago, uh, it's really not uh, news for you experts, I admit. But for amateurs like me, I say, drop everything that you're doing right now and go find a copy of Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Each new medium must have unique qualities that can be exploited and that can be turned into a unique art form. Paul Cantor discovered this truth by historical analysis, by what he calls a structural argument. Scott McCloud illustrates the same point by tons of examples for graphic novels in particular. So what is unique about graphic novels? Well, the narrative is expressed in pictures that progress through time. But unlike movies, the eye can progress or even regress at its own pace. Panel placement can make time relationships kind of ambiguous if you get creative with it. A panel might represent an instant or a duration. Then there's the mysterious gap between panels. Lots of stuff can get placed in those gaps implicitly if the author knows how to exploit this capability. By these and other techniques, the reader is drawn in and becomes an active participant, almost a co-creator of the narrative. Now, this is kind of true in all media, but McLeod makes the case that it's especially true in graphic novels. Understanding comics is not just clever and entertaining. Because it's a graphic text, not a plain text, it can illustrate the very points it describes while it's describing them. This gives Understanding Comics an effortless grace missing from those other dusty old books I found on the library shelves. Scott McCloud's sequel is called Reinventing Comics, and it covers the digital revolution, but because of its age, and that one's still about 10 years old, uh, that book seems a little less startlingly new than its predecessor, just by the nature of the topic, which is changing so fast. Uh, this book is still worth reading, however, and it also covers the, uh, an important episode in comics history, the anti-comics crusade left, led by the psychiatrist Frederick Wortham, which resulted in the Comics Code, which is um, really a severe act of self-censorship. McLeod lets slip a very interesting fact, one that would be kind of interesting to the libertarians at the von Mises Institute, actually. The Comics Code was agreed to by the major publishers in part, possibly in part, to squeeze competition out of the market. Well, in any case, I urge you to go to Scott McLeod's website, scottmcleod.com. Once again, Tony will supply links um, on the Starship Sofa website. Uh, and also check out the sequels to Understanding Comics. Scott McCloud earns my highest recommendation. In the next episode of The Graphic Fan, I'll start reviewing real live graphic novels. I promise. I'm no expert, so this tour of the, of the medium will be idiosyncratic. 
but I found some gems you may not know about. See you next time, sofa people. There you go. It's something actually I'm really interested in, like I said before, and I'm something I'm looking forward to each month. Fred, thank you so much. And what Fred said about the links, they will be on the front of the website. There'll be a link for the Paul A. Cantor, the 500 Essential Graphics novels, and Scott McLeod's book and website as well. So if you need to learn everything about the graphic novel, we have a teacher on our hands. Fred, thank you, sir. There you go, that is Oral Delights, show number 145. Just a big thank you to Mayhair for that amazing video. Mayhair, thank you so much. And for everybody else, Fred, Amy, James, Nicola, and not forgetting Mr. Bradbury. (laughs) What a show. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Thank <laughs> you.